You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is also in the podcast business. We'll tell you about that coming up here in just a moment. A couple of quick reminders. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Check out our website, HazardGround.com. And don't forget about that Amazon promotion right on the website, HazardGround.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It's also under the Sponsors tab. From there, do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Buy whatever you like. Buy something for me because, you know, well, hey, as a wonderful host, I deserve something from you guys. Just kidding. Anyway, uh, you do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we will donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. It works the same way from your smartphone. So if you go to hazardground.com on your smartphone and click on the Amazon button there, uh, it'll redirect it to the Amazon app. So all of your credit card information is stored. It's very easy, very user-friendly. Hazardground.com is our website. Please continue, continue, continue to leave us Apple reviews. We're starting to climb up the ranks on the Apple Podcast, want to crank the top 100, and we can't do that without your support. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doesn't have to be a long one, just something short and sweet. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show, and if you're lucky, you'll get rewarded by us posting your review on our social media site. So yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the that's the reason you go ahead and do it. All right, on to this week's episode about a former Army warrant officer who is a former infantryman with multiple deployments to Afghanistan. Currently, he's an MBA student, but he also hosts a podcast called the Panjway Podcast, which highlights service members who served in the Panjway province in Afghanistan. He is Curtis Grace joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Curtis, welcome, man. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, man. Okay, so we're both in the podcast business. And as I've always said to people, there is nothing proprietary about uh, the veteran space. So welcome to uh, the podcast industry in the military world. Um, but look, it's great that you're sort of, we're similar in that sense. We're both talking to veterans about their personal stories. Yours just has a very, very specific specific focus. And that was where you deployed to as well in the Panjway province in Afghanistan. So it's very personal. I think that's great. Uh, I think it's fantastic that, you know, you're, you're taking your experience and sort of springboarding it into others to tell their experience, which is kind of uh, the same thing that we do here. So uh, continued success with the Panjway podcast. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that. So, and you can tell, folks, he's all set up with his uh, podcasting equipment and everything. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, by the way, I forgot to mention our YouTube channel and the Killcliff TV app, where you can watch all of the podcasts that we have, as well as listen to them uh, in the normal audio fashion. So, Curtis, let's start back at the beginning for you. How did you end up as an 11 Bravo grunt in the Army? Uh, well, a girl broke my heart. So there's a that's <laughs> definitely a place to start. Um, it's always actually, about a woman, bro. <laughs> I actually always thought I'd end up in the military. Um, I just fooled myself into thinking it was kind of like automatic. You got a college degree and you just be this wonderful officer and think you go your way. Uh, and once I kind of realized that wasn't the case, I started to get the itch to go to combat. And I realized that there was probably a time frame for that to, to happen. It was kind of going away. This is back 2010. Uh, so I was like, well, what's the fastest way for me to get into combat? And that was, you know, 11 Bravo OSIT uh, into a deploying unit. So that's what I did. I went to, I went to infantry OSIT. At the, on the shortest timeline that I could. And I got my wish a little bit too, <laughs> too well as uh, like uh, probably six weeks after I got to my unit, I was in Afghanistan. So, so wait, it was a very, nobody tried to talk you out of the, this whole process. I mean, no one said to you, look, bro, it's a girl. You'll get over it. 
you know, don't do this. There was, there was never any of those conversations. No, because it really wasn't about the girl. Okay. That just, that was just kind of drove me to like do it faster, I guess. Um, but really it was, I did, people did try to talk me out of it, uh, because I had pretty high GT scores. So I was a little bit overqualified for what they were typically slotting into the 11 Bravo slot. Um, but as I'm sure you've, you've run into many times talking to 11 Bravos there, they actually tend to be exceptionally smart. It's one of the smartest MOSs in the U S army. Um, so they only tried to talk me out of it for a little bit. Once they knew they had me, they kind of just let it go and let me go off and I think. Uh, I mean, when you say they, was it your parents? Was it friends? Was it other people who were in the military or? Oh, the recruiters. Yeah. Oh, so, but I mean, in general, like nobody tried to dissuade you from joining the military at all? No, no. My family's always been extremely supportive of the military. My stepfather is a, is a Kiowa pilot. So he was kind of part of the process of, you know, me joining the army. Um, and one thing that kind of stood out is, you know, being a pilot was something that was kind of always on my wish list. Uh, but it, he felt, and I've also in talking to other veterans felt that getting that ground experience first would benefit me down the road if I did decide to become a pilot. So I felt that, you know, coming an 11 Bravo first would better prepare me for any future in the military, but particularly to become a pilot. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of interesting because the sense getting, becoming a pilot isn't easy. There's a lot of obstacles and things that can trip you up along the way. And most people take the most direct line to that. And people who don't start out in that line typically have a hard time breaking in to that world. And that never deterred you at all about worrying about, listen, that's that, an option that might not be available. Even didn't the recruiters kind of tell you, Hey, that's probably not the easiest way to be a pilot. Uh, they did. And they did. Uh, we did talk about the direct entry program, which is like the high school to flight school, which is where you can essentially enlist as a warrant officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, I really wanted that ground combat experience. Uh, so the, the obstacles in a way didn't really deter me. I felt that I had the, the skills and, um, capability to do it and i'm not usually the kind of person that lets people tell me i can't do something so if you tell me i can't do something i'm more inclined to uh push forward and actually try to do it all right so what was the the date the month when you signed on the dotted line Ooh, i signed on the dotted line sometime in april of 2011 but i got on the bus to go to basic training on october 3rd 2011, which has historically been a pretty uh, eventful date for me and also for military, military. history. Yeah, <laughs> uh, to say the least, a very eventful day. Uh, yeah. So less than a year later, you're in Afghanistan. How quickly does that happen? How does it come about? Oh, my gosh. So I got to Fort Stewart uh, against <laughs> against every uh, earning in my body. Everybody wants to go to all the other units. But uh, so I got to Fort Stewart. I was in reception. And I was supposed to go to a different brigade and they, they said, Hey, 11 Bravos stay in formation. Everybody else can go. And they're like, Hey, raise your hand. If you are married, so, okay. Married people can leave. And there are probably about 40 of us still standing there. They're like, your orders are changing. You're going to one six, four and you're deploying in like three weeks. So it was like, wow. Like, and that was probably a week out of basic training that they told us that. Damn. Were you like, Whoa, this is way too fast. I'm, I'm not ready for this sort of relationship. <laughs> no, I was ready to go. I, was, <laughs> I thought I was the greatest infantryman that God had ever created. I was straight out of basic training. I thought I was going to go win the war. Did you even get a chance to go to infantry school before you had left? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. You- so they, uh, they do, I, when I say basic training. I just loop it all into one. Cause okay, for infantry, gotcha. we do OSI. I was going to say, you, you, you sort of skipped a step there. I'm like, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> all right. So quickly you get to Afghanistan. Like, do you know, how much time do you have with your unit 
to gel? You know, how much time are you still the FNG by the time you land in Afghanistan? I had, I think, three work days with my actual unit before we stepped off. Um, so we did our reception thing, but my unit was actually at NTC when all this was happening. So what they did is they created this abbreviated train up and I can't remember what they called it. Um, but they took all of us that got selected for the short notice deployment and they did everything that they had to do. Your team live fires, squad live fires, platoon live fires, um, got all your gear, did all that stuff. We did it in like two, two and a half weeks. And then they sent us to our company. And as you know, before you deploy, you have like four day weekends every weekend before you deploy. Yeah. So we got there on like a Tuesday, we worked a Wednesday and then Thursday was off and then we we're back again on Tuesday and we deployed on a Wednesday. So I met the people actually in my company for three or four work days maybe. And then I was on a plane with them heading to Afghanistan. Are you told anything at that point in time about what you're going to be doing? A little bit. Um, Cause at that time everyone's hearing about uh, coin, right? So we're building bridges and wells and doing all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what I thought we would be doing. Bullshit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but every time I asked, they're like, no, it's, it's combat. We're, we're going to combat. I was like, okay, great. That's what I signed up for. Uh, but I didn't really realize until we got there that that's really what our job was. We, yeah. there were coin operations going on in Panjway. It was so dangerous that none of the NGOs would go in there. Yeah. So, um, um, coin is a fancy term uh, for those civilians listening short for counterinsurgency. Um, but yeah. And, and the way to do that is through, uh, hearts and minds and, and building up cities and everything else. It's not like direct act, direct action counterinsurgency and, and whatever flag officer thought that up, yeah, you got a whole bunch of pats on the back and everybody thought it was great. And in reality, it's complete and utter horseshit. Um, and, and I, and I say that only because of where we are now, all the hearts and minds in the world, all the bridges, all the schools and everything else. And as we sit here recording this, you know, in the beginning of August and we're watching Afghanistan fall back in the hands of the Taliban, all that infrastructure in the world didn't matter to a single person. I mean, it's great in theory, and it seems like it works on paper, but in reality, when you're applying it to a 2,000-year-old mentality of how to live and survive, um, violence rules the day still, and, and bridges and schools and everything aren't going to fix that. So, uh, yeah, again, uh, it's just one of those things where it seems like it, it was going to be effective, but it never was. I, I'm off my soapbox. I apologize. Uh, now, you had honestly... What, maybe fired your weapon a half dozen times by the time you get on a plane, right? In your in your entire life? If that. Yeah. And, and now, I mean, they're, now they're asking you to go into combat. <laughs> I, I felt super confident. They they did a great job in basic training and telling me that was straight up a killer. So I bought into it. Took mine and sinker. I thought I was going to, like I said, I thought I was going to win the war. And, you know, the first thing that they hand me in, a, in the war zone isn't even a freaking rifle. It's a mine detector. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, so you get there and you realize that it's not counterinsurgency, it's straight combat. What's the nature of day to day? I mean, are you outside the wire a bunch or are you sitting back on a fob? What's the experience like when you first get there? So it evolved slowly. Uh, and it's worth pointing out that we had, we had an exceptional company commander. He had just come to us from Ranger Bat. So he was really motivated. He had a lot of experience in the area. And I got the idea that he kind of jockeyed for this particular posting because of what it what it entailed that he felt uniquely qualified to run that, uh, that particular outpost. Um, so when we got there, the unit that we replaced hadn't been patrolling much outside of the immediate vicinity of the cop. So that's what our first patrols were. They were pretty close, pretty quiet. Uh, as the deployment ramped up, we started pushing into some of these more contested areas. You're talking, uh, at least one squad, uh, or platoon is out the wire every day doing a long dismounted patrol. One, 
um, platoon or squad is out doing some sort of vehicle support and one is on QRF and the QRF unit's always going out for something, something's always happening. So typically your, your vehicle driving day, which might be ferrying one of the other units around would kind of be your, your day off. Uh, but it would just be long dismounted patrols, really just long movements to contact, uh, shielded under the guise of going to do a key leader engagement. So we're going to go to this town and we're going to talk to this, you know, village elder and, but we're really just going to these areas because that's where the Taliban is and we're expecting to take contact. Right. Now for geographic reference for everybody, uh, Kandahar, I mean, uh, uh, Panjway is about what, 90 minutes west of, of Kandahar, right? I mean, it's, it's not far away. Really close. So as, as the crow flies, it's probably about 15 miles. Okay. Uh, so Panjway is a district uh, that is within the Kandahar province. So you would think of like a county and it's about, it's one of the larger districts in Kandahar just because it entails a good part of the Registan Desert. But the, the habitable zone of Panjway is actually pretty small, probably about 30 to 40 kilometers wide. All right. So what's the sort of uh, lay of the land from the standpoint of how much – I mean you're not in huge mountains there, but is there a lot of, of you know, sort of civilian, you know, populace? Is there, are there small cities and towns and everything? So it's, it's an incredibly agrarian area. So they, they grow a lot of uh, grapes, a lot of drugs, all that kind of stuff. So everything's kind of built around that. Uh, and there's a river to the north and a river to the south that kind of come together and form what we kind of like call the Horn of Panjway. It comes down to a point. And these rivers basically irrigate this area. So it's extremely verdant. It's full of greenery. You've got uh, walls around every single field. A lot of the fields are great fields. And the way that they dig those is they essentially dig trenches. So that's the majority of the fields in the area. So Panjway really is just a really humid, dense trench network uh, with probably a kalat, which would be a village, maybe every a kilometer. Uh, it may sometimes even less. So it's on one hand, it's incredibly rural because it's all farmers and it's greenery and there's not a lot of modern modern infrastructure. But on the other hand, it's very urban because you have all these tiny little towns and the population of this small area is something like twenty to 30,000 people. There are a ton of people there. By the way, I appreciate how you said uh, grapes and drugs so nonchalant as if, you know, you buy those things in the same place. They grow grapes and drugs. Uh, Also, that Panjway uh, is basically considered the spiritual home of the Taliban. So uh, it's a big stronghold for the Taliban. How quickly do you start to see contact from the enemy? So for us, when our platoon was the first to take contact, it was about three weeks. And like I said, that was mainly because we were following on, in the footsteps of our previous units. So we didn't extend very far away from the base. Once we started extending our patrols away from the base, that it was it was constant. Uh, so I think we I think I earned my CIB on April 25th, 2012. Um, and then I earned it many, 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 many more times. Uh, it was it was pretty constant anywhere, everywhere from the end of April all the way until we left in December. It was pretty much every patrol somebody was getting into it that's crazy um when do you start to sustain your first casualty uh so our first hmm i think our first casualty was unfortunately uh um master at arms to sean brazos who was killed on may 30th i'm pretty sure that's the date uh 2012 and he was shot on a major uh clearing operation and that same operation is where we started to take more wounded as well um, some shrapnel and stuff like that. After that operation, we started to see a lot more IEDs. Uh, we had our first AI IED uh, casualties on June 12th and uh, 14th. 
two engineers, uh, Specialist Pinnock and Sergeant Joseph Lilly were killed. And actually, just two days prior to that, we lost uh, Corporal Bryant Luxmore uh, to small arms fire. So very, very shortly after we started seeing contact, we started to see not only uh, wounded, but we started to lose guys. Are, are and, you at this point overwhelmed? I mean, you, you thought you were going to win the war by yourself and you're quickly starting to see your brothers fall. Or, or is there any part of you that's sort of wishing you hadn't overestimated what this whole experience was going to be like? A big part of it, because I think the, the part that we didn't plan for was the IED aspect. Because um, when you think about IEDs, everyone goes to Iraq, right? We're thinking about big, giant bombs. Yeah. They're on the We're not worried about stepping on them. Guilty. Got the T-shirt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my first IED was a big one in my truck. Uh, but very quickly after that, it was all these little tiny, and you would call them toe poppers, like five to 10 pound IEDs. But I mean, it's enough to take a guy's leg off. And I think we lost nine to 10 guys' legs. Um, to these things over the course of the deployment, in addition to our um, killed in action. And that was the part that was really started to to mess with guys. You know, small arms contact, we can train for that. We can react to that. We have the advantage after the first exchange of gunfire. But with the IEDs, they were much better at placing them. We had a big, very big learning curve to figure out where they are, how to find them, and how best to deal with that tactic. Um, and it was probably... After the engineers were killed, um, June 12th, that we really were like, hey, we are not. That's when the psychological impact started to hit guys and that we're not prepared for this. Um, and it was a very psychologically demanding deployment for a lot of guys. We had very, very heavy mental attrition. At any point in time, are you second guessing this whole thing? No. And I think, like I said, remember, I go back. I'm just like, I'm, I can't. I couldn't at that time. I'm like, there's no way I could have ever quit something that I had started, and it. I was like, I'm I'm th- through it to the end. But there were definitely days I'm like, fuck this, like it's like, what are we doing? Like, I cannot keep. Why are we going out? Why are we doing this? Why are we the only ones in our battalion that are seeing this? Can we get any help? Can we get any reinforcements? Um, and you know, I'm glad we didn't get help or reinforcements because you know, there's a certain pride that we finished the job that we started. But yeah, I mean, there. Once, once we started taking casualties, you really started to wonder, like, why are we even doing this? Yeah, I mean, and that's – that feeling overwhelming, and especially when you recognize that and you, you come to the, the acknowledgement that this is diminishing returns at best, and then you start to lose more guys on top of it, the level of frustration mounts fairly quickly. What was that like for you? So I think for me it was a lot slower process because I was brand new. You know, straight out of right. basic training. I didn't really know any better. I thought this was a normal deployment. I thought this is how they all were. So I was like, maybe hey, this is what everyone's been doing for 11 years. I'm just going to put my head down and keep walking. Um, but a lot of guys that were more seasoned that had seen other deployments, they started to, to have those questions and those issues a lot sooner. Um, and those were the guys that were trying to make changes, trying to allow us to do things safer. Um, but, you know, there's the broad spectrum of how people react to things. Some of those guys just like, Hey, it's not worth it. Um, and you know, they ended up on, on mayor cell or they ended up on at different bases or something like that. And, you know, there's certain amount of controversy between people that said that I can't do it. But personally for me, I'm like, Hey, it's everyone reaches the breaking point and I'm fine with that. I never reached it on that deployment. Um, but I had no hate for anybody that realized it just wasn't worth it for them. That's fine. Yeah. Um, 
so you, you you're going through all this and you're losing people. Are you? Oh, can you even be aware of mentally what it's doing to you while you're going through it? No, I mean, and we tried. Uh, it it did come to a point later when we had a very bad uh, day towards the end, uh, just a massive mass cal that pretty much just wiped us out of all of our NCO leadership. And at that point, that's when we realized that our platoon was messed up that we needed we needed some time and fortunately we were able to work the strings and get the combat stress team onto the post and give us a couple days to talk to them uh but it wasn't until this was october it was october 3rd and 4th ironically um that that 2012 2012 uh and it wasn't until then that we really realized that there might be issues here uh but then again, you know, we got back up and we finished the deployment. We came back. We were rock stars. We had this massive combat deployment. And I think it took guys several more years to realize that that deployment wasn't normal and that it's really messing guys up. And it's really even doing the podcast now is when a lot of this stuff is coming up for people that they're like, hey, like, I'm glad I can talk about this now because I haven't talked about it for nine years. Curtis, I wonder, um, and for just some context for people um, who may or may not know about the Kandahar Massacre. Uh, it's uh, U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Robert Bales uh, left the post, walked on his own uh, through a neighborhood, um, through ha- from house to house, killing 16 civilians, wounding six children. Eventually, he was, you know, uh, sentenced to life in prison uh, for the whole thing. He fully admitted to the crimes. Um, but I say that because we were talking before we started recording that that happened just before you guys had got there. So you had been aware of the incident. But I mean, was there any talk of combat stress and PTSD, like, the, or did, we, did everybody just chalk it up to, well, that guy just went nuts and that was the end of it and nobody talked about it anymore because that should have been, in hindsight, you know, a red flag for everybody that what's going on here is putting an immense amount of stress on people. Yeah, and I think that was around the time that that conversation was really starting to become mainstream and the stigma on that kind of stuff was starting to go down, but it wasn't down yet. It was still kind of like, hey, you got to put your head down and go forward. And I, th- I don't think it would be controversial to say that uh, if you listen to our podcast and you get kind of an idea of what Bales was like, everyone's going to look back at their unit and be like, hey, man, I know someone like that. I know someone who's been on four combat deployments and has had all kinds of family and financial problems and it's just not right in the head. Like, we've all met that guy. And it's not excusing what he did at all. Like, he took it a step beyond just the guy that can has like four divorces or whatever. Um, yeah. But everyone has seen the stress that these repeated, long, ruling deployments especially in iraq where you had like infantry guys driving around for 14 months coming back for six months and going back and doing it again uh i I think that's it that eventually did become part of the conversation with what bales did is because it was wasn't an uncommon like profile of a soldier at that time yeah i mean it's just i I just want to be able to provide as much context uh for what you guys had gone through um, and, and you keep sort of glossing over, you know, we went back and did the deployment and everything else, but um, obviously you're sustaining more casualties along the way. Obviously, none of this is getting easier. Um, and you, not once do you ever sort of look at this and go, man, this is this is bad. Uh, and I think it's because we were a very young unit. Uh, I would say at least 80 percent of us mm-hmm. on that deployment had never deployed before, no, like had never earned seen combat or anything like that. So we were, we were looking at this with a, uh, through a weird kind of filter that we didn't understand and we wouldn't understand for quite some time. So a lot of us were just like, Hey, put your head down, keep going, keep fighting. Um, 
And I, I, for better or worse, I think that that worked to some guys' advantage, just having a little bit less context about what was going on. I mean, the youth being sort of part of your resiliency of the whole thing, um, you know, do you do, do you ever wonder how you made it out alive? Oh, every day. I mean, and the close calls just stack up. I mean, like how so? So, I mean, I drove over two IEDs. Uh, one was fairly large. Um, I was the minesweeper for six months out of the nine months of the deployment. So I was at the front of the element with the mine detector and I barely knew how to use the thing. I don't know how many that I stepped on that were just weren't turned on. Um, I've been shot in my backpack, just barely missing a claymore in the pack. Um, one of the rounds went in between the pack and my plate. So just you're talking two inches from my spine and you know, I'm, I'm a casualty. Uh, I've switched out mine detectors with people. And then five minutes later, they stepped on an IED. It's there's all, I mean, I think anybody who's been to war has these stories about the, the time it almost got them. And when we talk about how many IEDs were in the ground, how many small arms contacts we had, I'm honestly amazed. We only lost five people uh, in terms of um, killed in action because the opportunities that existed for far worse just, it just blows my mind. I can't, I can't believe we didn't lose more people. Crazy. Um, when you get back from that deployment, is there a sense of relief? Is there a sense of, you know, thank God it's over? Like, what are you thinking and feeling when you guys get back? I think it was a big part that, um, you know, when we came back, we came back to all of our, our wounded buddies on the tarmac. So it was this really awesome experience of getting home our own relief, but then our relief at seeing that they were okay. Cause it's the first time we've seen them not on a medevac bird or not lying in a, a field or on a stretcher or something like that. So there's a immense emotional reaction to not only our own safety, cause you know, the toy wasn't over until you stepped off that bird in Hunter army airfield. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, now it's over. Now I can go see my family. Now I can change into real person clothes and there's Clark and he's, you know, he's not walking yet, but he's, he's okay. And the last time I saw him, I wasn't sure it was going to be. Um, and that was a super powerful, um, experience for everybody. What's the first thing you do when you get back? I took a very, very long shower. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after that, like after that, uh, did you, you go take leave? Do you go visit family or you kind of guy who just went right back to work? So they did, uh, this was at this time they were doing like the two week of out processing, out processing. Right. So. The night of it, yeah, I did a shower, and then I blew off my family, and me and the boys went out, and we, we, got, we got hammered in Savannah, so it was a great night. Where'd you um, go? Oh, Savannah Smiles, okay. I can't remember. I'm familiar, like all- I'm not too far from Fort Stewart, spent a lot of time there, so, you know, Savannah is a hop, skip, and a jump away, mm-hmm. theoretically. That was a great town. Um, if only you didn't have to drive 50 minutes from Fort Stewart to get there. Yeah, that's, well, that's the other part. They kind of allure you into, hey, it's right near Savannah. Yeah, not so much. That's like saying Austin is near Fort Hood. Yeah, not so much. No, not at all. Um, but basically during those two weeks was kind of our decompression with each other. So we go out and we get drunk or we go out to dinner. We'd hang out together. We got to do, especially for us that had just joined the unit right before we only, our only experience with these guys was in combat. Right. So I'm getting to know my friends for the first time because my first interactions with them was us like fighting for each other's lives. This was really interesting in those two weeks to actually get to know all these people beyond the army. Any discussions whatsoever about mental health, PTSD, any of that stuff? Did anybody bring up the fact that they might not be okay? 
you know, this was still a time. I, no, I don't think anybody really did. I think everybody was still lying on their uh, post-deployment assessments saying we're fine. Um, and there were quite a few people saying that, hey, I'd like to talk to somebody. But as soon as it got to the point where they started talking about medication or stuff like that, people would kind of balk and, and step away. So maybe maybe two or three people took it seriously. Um, I know me, myself, I was I was laser locked on flight school. So I was like, no, I'm good. There, I wouldn't, wouldn't even consider the possibility that what I experienced would affect me in any way whatsoever. Um, so it's not that I necessarily lied on my post-deployment evaluation, uh, but I certainly down – I mean – I, I was honest. Why I, I just reserve certain things for myself. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I do know that we did receive a little bit extra attention from like the post-deployment psychologist, just because our company had experienced a disproportionate amount of combat relative to the rest of the battalion. Um, but there was, there was really no emphasis other than that. If guys didn't self-identify that they were having issues, that was pretty much the end of it. And we started getting ready for, you know, gunnery in the fall or whatever. I hate asking this question, but any of those guys end up not alive anymore after the fact? Not due to suicide. Okay. We have been extremely lucky, um, knock on wood, that everyone who has had issues has sought help, mm-hmm. uh, which has been kind of the the delayed um, situation. No one really sought it immediately, but guys right now, and especially in the last four to five years, have been excellent about going and getting help. The guys that are in, the guys that are out, um, and we've been very fortunate, at least on, on our platoon level, I can't speak for the entire company that we've not lost anybody guys have had some rough times for sure. Um, but they've all bounced back from it. All right. So you're laser locked on flight school. Do you already have a, uh, a slot? Do you, I mean, what's, what's left for you to sort of, uh, uh, bridge this gap here? So once I was back, I started the application process. And it took, I think I got accepted in September. So we came back in December of 2012. I got my acceptance in September of 2013. Um, I Because you have to go through, you have to get a flight physical, you have to take the test, you have to do all this kind of stuff. So it was actually, I was pretty pleased to get it, you know, the whole process done in, in nine months. Um, but yeah, it's September, I got the great news and... Then in January of 2014, I was off on my way to Fort Rucker. Did any of your buddies uh, look at you like sell out, you're leaving us kind of deal? No, because I think, you know, A, once you've already had that experience with them, they're like, okay, you're legit. You're not, you're not quitting on us. You've got your CIB. You've, right. We've seen you in combat. You, you did what you, you've done your part. Um, we also just had a really exceptional company that guys on the, on the majority were very supportive of stuff like that so we sent guys to range regiment we sent guys to selection you know i went to flight school we incur uh the same company commander that i mentioned earlier was incredibly supportive of guys going out and furthering themselves and taking advantage of those opportunities uh to the extent that he once he knew that i wanted to go to flight school and he knew that i had the scores and the aptitude to do it uh he pulled me from the line which i was very much against at the time put me in headquarters and said hey this is so that if you have anything you need from me at all for me to sign, you can come directly to me. You don't need to go through a team leader and a squad leader and a platoon sergeant and a PL. Just come to me. I'll sign it. I'll get you what you need. Um, so the company was incredibly supportive from the top to the bottom of my goals and other guys' goals moving forward in the Army. Must have been a pretty comforting feeling. It's not always the case. No, it's definitely not always the case. And I am thankful every day for 
his support and for the luck of just ending up in that company. And it's, you know, it's the army. I could have ended up in much, much, much worse situations. So you're off to Fort Rucker, right? I mean, is it Warren officer school first and then flight school or the other way around? It's so it's a, it's an eight or seven week Warren officer candidate school. Okay. Which is, it's really just a hazing. (laughs) I mean, they're, it's not worse than basic training physically, but they have they have a very strict set of rules. So you just it's a game. You play the game, you graduate, you get your dot, and you get paid a lot more, and then you can move on to flight school. Okay, so uh, nothing impressive about Locke. <laughs> no, I mean we we wrote some really cool songs, uh, but other than that, I don't really think there was anything. Um, you get to flight school. Uh, obviously, it's a lot of studying, a lot of hours. I mean, how long is it? It's better part of six months easily, right? It depends on the airframe that you choose. Okay. Uh, once you start the flight portion of flight school, and I always consider flight school from start to finish be like walks until graduation, which is typically two to two and a half years. Oh, wow. Once you start the flight portion, there's two sections. There's primary which is where you learn how to fly a helicopter. You learn how to perform instrument flight and you learn basic like army flight, like flying low altitudes, navigation, stuff like that. Uh, that's usually, I want to say four to five months. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. That's when you get, you get to fly all these little tiny birds that are um, just designed for training and you get to watch all your friends make stupid mistakes. And uh, it's, you know, it was honestly one of the, my favorite times of flight school because the stress was fairly low for most of us because, you know, there's a certain level of aptitude required to get there. And if you're there, you know how to study and you know how to prepare yourself and you know how to do this stuff. But there's not any level of aptitude that can prepare you for, like, putting your hands on the controls. So you get to make fun of your buddies when it takes them, you know, 20 hours to learn how to hover or or whatever. It's just fun to watch and it's fun to learn and develop these skills over the course of uh, they want to say about a hundred hours of flight in the, in the primary phase. And then you move on to advanced aircraft. Well, and in between those, you get to pick your aircraft based on your placing in the class. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be able to pick the Apache. Uh, and that was stems back to being a ground guy and seeing what they did for us. And the Kai was what they did for us. And I wanted to perform that mission in the future. I wanted to be that support for the ground force going forward. That was the mission that I wanted to do. So I was lucky to get Apaches and the Apache course is about six months, uh, but you have a gap in between the courses. Gotcha. So it's, it doesn't go straight through. So after flight school, you're headed where? South Korea. <laughs> <sighs> Which, you know, as an enlisted guy, all I heard was horror stories about Korea and how horrible it was and how much it was boring and you couldn't do anything. And unfortunately, that is true. I, it was true at the time for most of the enlisted uh, service members in Korea, but as an officer, you had the ability to have a car so you could drive yourself around. And if you work the system right, you could live off post, uh, which I was able to do. So for me, it was a mostly positive experience in Korea. Wow. Um, how quickly do you end up deploying from there again? So I ended up, I actually got to leave Korea a little early because I got orders to uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord in Tacoma. Uh, and that they were going to Afghanistan. But before I could go there, I had to get qualified in the newer model, uh, Apache, the Echo model. So I got to leave a couple months early to go back to Fort Rucker to learn how to fly the, uh, the Echo model and then go back to uh, JBLM and deploy. And it was honestly probably about two months at JBLM and then I was in Afghanistan. 
What was different about the newer model? Anything that stands out? Uh, power, lots more power. So, you know, with helicopters, everything is, is done in terms of percent of torque and how, what kind of, what kind of maneuvers can you do with that power setting? So in a hot day in the summer, a Delta model might require 80% torque to hover, whereas an echo model might only require 60%. And when you're going to the high mountains of Afghanistan, that's a huge difference in what you're able to do. You can go faster, you can fly higher, you can hover in higher altitude locations, you can carry more munitions. So it's, especially somewhere like Afghanistan, it's a, it's a huge advantage. Sounds awesome. I literally have no idea what you just said, but that's, you know, sounds great. As long as the guy doesn't crash, it's really, I think any passenger on a helicopter who's not a pilot really cares about. So uh, more power sounds good. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I kid, I kid. Um, but <laughs> so you end up in back in Afghanistan. Where are you going now? I had the privilege of going almost everywhere in Afghanistan, but originally my posting was in coast. Okay. Um, so a, a very small um, base and coast, basically just supporting medevac mission, hoping to catch the occasional, you know, actual ground support or even a direct action uh, kind of mission. But for the most part, it was medevac support. Now, this is when? 2016? 2017. 2017. Okay. Um, uh, ISIS is also a thing. Say so ISIS, ISIS is now a thing in Afghanistan in 2017 as well. Yeah, very much so. Um but and reading in your notes ahead of time, uh, you had an aircraft accident prior to deploying. I did, I did, and that okay. was. Uh, so do tell. <laughs> that's why was, uh, it, was Korea- it because of too much power? <laughs> no, unfortunately, um, it was actually in Korea. Uh, it was an accident on the ground. Um, it was it was pretty bad, and it's actually you know it's probably a good time to talk about it because I don't talk about it very much. Um, so we're getting ready to do this big mission. We get canceled for weather and we're like, Hey, at least we can do is we can set the next crew up for success by doing their engine checks for them. And in the, while we're doing our engine checks, we're like, Hey, our tailwheel is unlocked. And what that basically means on army helicopters, that if the tail is unlocked and you apply power, the aircraft is going to spin. Like, well, we don't want that. We need to lock the tailwheel. So we're going to back up and we're going to pull forward so that we can lock the tailwheel so that we don't set the other crew up for failure. And I still don't remember exactly what happened. Uh, Myself and the pilot in command, who is an amazing pilot. He's still in the army. He's an instructor pilot. We still don't have a hundred percent just because what happened next was just insane. But essentially the aircraft started spinning in the pad and we impacted another aircraft. And once, you know, big things that spin under jet turbine power run into things that stop them, bad things happen. And essentially, we just got whiplashed. The aircraft broke itself apart. Uh, the rotor system flapped backwards, cut the tail boom, and then flapped forwards and cut the canopy off the aircraft. Uh, and when it flapped forward and cut the canopy off the aircraft, it actually the rotor blade actually hit me in the head and knocked my helmet off my head. Uh, it was about a three-second oh. accident that caused $30 million worth of damage. It was... Oh, it was, uh, okay. Outside of your head, I'll get to that in a minute, and if it's okay, yeah, the paperwork for that thing must have been just incredibly insane. Yeah, <laughs> I've still got I've still got a statement of charges for twenty nine million seven hundred thousand dollars. You do not. I, they didn't make me pay it because I mean, <laughs> that, there's no way. But it's you know, 
it's part of the normal process of the investigation. They do have to initially charge you for the damages and then they decide whether or not they're going to make you pay for it. And they're like, no, we're not going to make you pay for it. Okay. So, um, I describe getting hit in the head with a rotor blade. Um, well, I didn't, I didn't actually know that that is what happened until many days later. Uh, but the experience of the accident was, far more traumatic than anything that happened on the infantry deployment in 2012. Really? Um, because I, I was absolutely certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was going to die. I, I knew that the aircraft was being chewed up by the rotors over top of me. I know of several instances where the person in the front seat has had their head chopped off by a rotor blade. I could f- hear the canopy disintegrating. The aircraft is just buckling incessantly and like I have no control over, I, there's nothing I can do. It's absolutely powerless. So I just got my head down. I'm like, this is it. This is how it goes. And the only time that I realized started to get hope that it was going to be okay is when I heard the turbines start to wind down, uh, because the, the the pilot was able to get the power levers off very fast. Like I said, this is all happening in three seconds. Anybody else injured massively or seriously or anything? Well, uh, a piece of a rotor blade did cut a guy in the leg. Um, and he bled pretty good, but nothing life-threatening he was taken care of. But he was about 100 yards away in the hangar. This was on the tarmac in front of the hangar. So if anybody who's been to Korea probably knows about this story and has heard about the time that the aircraft crashed on the pad in front of the hangar. Um, but fortunately, no one was seriously hurt. Uh, he had that little cut on his leg, um, took him out of action for a little bit. Uh, I had... You know, obviously some neck trauma. I couldn't move my neck for a couple of weeks. Uh, and the, uh, the pilot in the back seat, he was sore for a while too. Uh, a little bit of neck soreness just from the whiplash. But thank God, other than that, everybody walked away and everybody got to continue their careers. So that was... was so nobody was at fault for this and just a freak accident? Pilot air. Um, I mean, it's always almost always pilot air. Uh, essentially, the accident investigation, which only part of it was released to us was that uh, the pilot on the controls reacted incorrectly to an uh, unexpected yaw, uh, which is a a spin. So essentially, you know, an aircraft is supposed to spin one way when you apply power and it spun the other way. And we think what happened is just instinctually um, the pilot on the controls hit the wrong pedal. Uh, but we we honestly don't know because neither of us remembers is after it, the initial. Is it kind of like turning into the skid as opposed to away from the skid kind of reaction? Yeah, yeah. Very, I would say it'd be a, it'd be a good comparison. Okay. Um, but again, like we we remember so little. I mean, it was it happened very very fast, and the next thing we know, we're climbing out of a aircraft that's leaking fuel and hydraulic fluid. And now, do you remember so little because? you almost got your head chopped off or remember so little just because it was long ago? Like what is it due to memory loss or anything like that? No, I, I there no, was no concussion or anything like that. I think no it was concussion just like, a rotor blade hit you in the head. <laughs> I'd like to go so, check that diagnosis. Um, no, I mean, they, they checked me out pretty thoroughly at the hospital. I mean, oh, I had yeah. a little- military doctors. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> a little bit of a cracked, uh, not crack, but like a, I don't know, something with the, cervical spine i can't remember what it was okay but uh, (laughs) does it bother you that your worst accident in a helicopter was on the tarmac and not even in combat it's super embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) do you ever get shot down no i have been in a helicopter accident in the parking lot 
parking lot. Yep, that's like saying you can crash into a parked car in a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, pretty but, much. But then you show them the pictures, and people are like, "Oh, okay, that's uh, <laughs> that looks pretty bad." So we'll give, we'll give you a pass on that one. So by all accounts, Afghanistan was pretty easy after you almost got your head chopped off by a rotor blade. Oh yeah, it was lots. Of, it was Afghanistan was an Apache pilot was a blast. It was fun from day one to day. I even tried to stay longer, but they wouldn't let me. So. The view of combat from above and the view of combat on the ground, obviously very different, but um, do you have an advantage as a pilot as one of the few pilots who's had that ground combat experience? I would say initially, yes, especially in the Apache and Kiowa community. What do you mean initially? Because there's, there's, a, there's a steep learning curve in terms of how do, you, how do you talk to the ground force? How do you help them best? Okay. How do you understand what they're trying to do? What words... And tactics are they using? Um, so, as a new pilot, this is kind of weird that they, that we do it this way. Um, the newer the newer pilot is the one generally talking on the radios and talking to the ground force and, and setting up all these engagements. And the the more experienced pilots flying the aircraft. Uh, whereas in reality, it's probably a little bit easier to switch those roles. But you know, the army can continue to do what it does. For me, it was easy because I had done it. I had been down there. I understood what these guys wanted. I understood what they were trying to accomplish. So if I looked at a map, I could talk them onto a building or I could talk them onto a target and have a conversation with a JTAC or an FO. And it really wasn't a, it wasn't difficult for me because I could orient myself to what they were doing. For guys that hadn't had kind of ground experience, it was a little bit more difficult to learn that part of flying the helicopter because that's nothing that they had ever been experienced or trained on or anything like that. But as you go on and you do it a couple hundred times, eventually those guys, they start to figure it out too. Um, what's the experience between watching a positively identified target fall when you do it from the ground versus when you do it from the air? So everything is recorded in the aircraft. Ah. So it's definitely a much more professional, uh, environment. So there's definitely a lot of gratification in pulling the trigger, following the hellfire to the target and watching it, you know, do its thing. But there's dev- it's not the same as if you're on the ground where you're jumping up going, fuck yeah, motherfucker, that's so cool. Woo! You're just like, Roger, left, uh, left turn out. You're, like, you're, you're infantryman. So cool. <laughs> uh, you're still doing your thing. You're, you're, you have to follow all your procedures. You got to make sure you're safe in the aircraft. So in the cockpit, during the engagement, it's all business. If something really cool happened, you take it back. After everybody's done, you go into the shed and you're like, dude, check this out. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you're just not being recorded anymore. Yeah, I guess uh, save your celebrations for uh, for after the, the, the aircraft is on the ground, right? Um, although I don't really know of many instances, at least it didn't happen to me, where there's a lot of high-fiving going on between ground combat. No one stops. Hey, dude, nice shot. Yeah. That, that's, that's not people are doing. No, definitely not. Not not between us, but if, if, you know, if we get a J-Dan, I mean, we're going we're gonna to pump some fists or a good rocket run by an Apache. I'm going to, I'm going to celebrate that. But um, I'll be like, dude, that was, that was some really nice impressive fire you put down with that song. I'm really impressed with that. <laughs> uh, the compliments army people pay each other. Um, so like, uh, I, I guess because you've had that experience, I mean, you clearly know how vital the role is. And I, I guess emotionally it's, as you mentioned, like when you see a JDAM or whatever, it's such a lift on the ground to know that there's that much firepower above covering your ass. Um, 
is there is was there an extra reward in that for you, knowing that you just allowed those guys to breathe a little bit easier for a split second? Yeah, and I and I could point to a really specific example ahead, that highlighted that for me is uh, while we were supporting uh, guys in uh, the ISIS fight, the uh, Special Operations Forces, they had infant, regular infantry guys attached to them, uh, both for security, extra guns, drivers, all that kind of stuff. And a couple of those regular infantry guys were, were sitting up on top of this hilltop OP doing what they're supposed to do, and they got hit with a mortar. And we're in the next valley over, but we start getting radio calls, and we come over, and they have no comms. They're on top of a hill. Nobody's within 20 minutes of them. And there's, they're exposed. Like they got four or five casualties. They're trying to treat them and they have no comms. So we became that link for them, you know, and the guy in my backseat, phenomenal pilot, another former grunt, um, understands. And we are always in sync. It's all about the ground force all the time, always about the ground guys. So there was no, there was no discussion between us. We knew we were going to do what we needed to do. We came down very low, started pulling really tight circles over top of these guys for two reasons. One, we wanted to take any fire that was going to be directed at them. Two, we were actually using our sensors and cameras to look at their casualties to write their nine line up for them so that they, cause they couldn't call it in. Um, so you we can see did all- that closely with, with the level of, or you just were given the basic first three or four lines of the nine line. Just the first basic okay, first. Yeah. Gotcha. Enough to get the birds off the ground. Right. You know, right. Gotcha. Stuff. Um, I mean, the cameras are pretty good, but you know, I couldn't can, can tell exact nature of the injuries. Got it. Uh, but, and then we remained there and pulled over until we started to see guys run up the hill. We came up in altitude so we could call in the medevac, and we were right on top of those guys all the way up until they were on the bird. And for me, that was the most rewarding mission that I did in Afghanistan in 2017. We didn't shoot a single person. Well, we shot somebody later that day. but <laughs> <laughs> Not a single person, During- well, except that one guy. During that particular event, we didn't fire anything. It was just us supporting the ground force in a way that was most beneficial to them, which was that they could focus on treating their casualties. We had the medevac. We had their we had their security. And I was able to reach out months later. All those guys were fine. They all are back doing their thing. There were no, no super serious injuries. So that was rewarding to me to finally be that shield for you know an infantryman that I experienced in 2012 as an infantryman. And to kind of bring it all full circle. So, I, I always that? ask um, pilots this because I'm, it's one of the same experience I haven't had. Um, but more importantly, just to the level of, of how our minds process these things, ground combat and seeing things unfold in front of you as a way of ingraining itself in your memory. Um, from the air, for lack of a better term, it's a lot less personal. It's more impersonal. You know, it's, it's like you said, it's all business. Target acquired, firing, target engaged, you know, break left, head back. And, you know, there's nothing about it that ever really, um, and, and it's not that there's no danger in what you're doing, but the imminent danger and the feeling of uh, bullets whizzing past your head or bombs going off near you isn't always there. Um, so describe for me, from your standpoint, was there anything about, pulling the trigger in the cockpit that's different than pulling the trigger on the ground for you personally. So especially between those two deployments, when I pulled the trigger in the cockpit, I was pulling it on a confirmed target. I knew exactly what I was shooting. I had a very specific target. If I didn't, I wouldn't be pulling the trigger. Right. As an infantryman, it was kind of like, Hey, shoot that way. Um, so in that way, it was actually a little bit more personal 
in the cockpit just because I knew that I knew the effect that I was having. I could see it. Um, but on the other hand, like you said, it's I'm doing everything through a video screen. So I'm not really had. It's not like I'm shooting a person and I'm having to watch them drop. That's not not something I ever had to experience. Um, so I can't speak to that experience on the ground personally. Um, but it is it is a little bit detached. But where I would say that you get very very personal in the aircraft, especially in the attack and scout community, is when the guys on the ground are in a bad spot yeah. or if they lose a guy, it crushes you. It is the worst feeling ever. Be like I couldn't help that guy that's that's when it gets very personal did that happen to you uh it happened i never lost a guy under me but the guys that got hit like in the story before and then there was one time we were supposed to pop up to respond to a mission and we couldn't get up and they did lose a guy and that was extra extremely what do you mean couldn't get up we couldn't get up because of weather oh okay gotcha so you can you can waive certain weather requirements based on the situation, and at the time the guys weren't in combat, so we were just supposed to be overhead security, which usually means that they don't get messed with. So they didn't see it was necessary to to waive the weather requirements, and uh, and it was pretty far away too, so it was right, right at the edge of the range, and uh, they actually they took a mortar hit, and I think they lost two guys. So that that was super frustrating to think that if we had been there, maybe we could have prevented that. How long was that deployment? Uh, it was a short eight months, okay. right at the end of eight months, uh, which well, I was like, I can stay a couple I can stay a little longer. You can push me out to a year if you want. Um, it was shorter than I wanted it to be. Gotcha. Uh, but I got to experience a lot on that deployment, including going back to Kandahar and getting to fly over Panjway and getting to fly over Sparrow and Gar and uh, get some real closure on, on that particular experience. So what about flying over there gave you closure? You know, just seeing that it's done. Uh, to see Sparwangar, which is where I was uh, stationed in 2012, and to see it be completely devoid and be like, "Hey, that's that's an era of my life that is now over." I, I've seen it. For, I've seen it to completion. Um, I don't. It was just to look down and see places that you had walked, or seen places that you had been shot at, or seen places where people had been blown up, or all these different locations, and you, you're taking it in all at once because you're flying it over in like three minutes. You're experiencing nine months of of uh of combat in three minutes of overflight it was just it was very powerful but looking back on it that that was the moment i was like hey that deployment's over for me like like i can put that behind me little did i know i you know five years later i'd just relive it every week on a podcast (laughs) (laughs) uh you get back from that deployment do you do you know at this point in time that you're gonna end up calling it a, a career no, I mean, at this point, I was still pretty motivated. I thought I was going to go and uh, become an instructor pilot and do all these kind of wonderful things uh, with my career. I now had two combat deployments, and I was had a lot of experience. I was really looking forward to continue that. But uh, this is where that conversation about PTS really is important. Um, I started to have issues uh, a couple months after we got back, and it kind of tied into some maintenance issues that Boeing was having with the aircraft that were pretty terrifying rotor blades flying off mid flight. Not exactly the greatest thing. Um, Seems like a small problem, minor, minor problem. Uh, and I started to have nightmares and flashbacks to my accident and all kinds of stuff was really distracting me. And I just I was like, Hey, I got to get through JRTC. If I get through JRTC, then I should be fine. It's just really stressful. Um, flew JRTC. And then I came back and I told my commander, I am not good. My head is not in the fight. I'm the, having issues in the cockpit and I need to go get help. Are you surprised that you didn't have nightmares immediately after? 
as opposed to when you got back from the deployment of your accident? I mean, no, I, you know, I, I attribute that to compartmentalization. Okay. And, a lot of the same reasons that I never really had issues with my first deployment until much later as well is that I went straight from my first deployment into I'm going to flight school. So my, my brain went straight into a different mode. It didn't look back. It was always looking forward. After the accident, it's like, I got to get to JBLM. I got to get to Afghanistan. I really wanted to deploy. It was everything that I wanted. So then I was there and then I was deployed. So that was my entire focus. So it wasn't until we came back and it's like, hey, like now your brain has some downtime. Like there's nothing on the schedule. You're not going anywhere. There's no major schools coming up. There's no change in your career happening anytime soon. And that that compounded with the, the maintenance issues that we were having really started to make me a very uh, poor teammate, a very poor soldier. Um, I was still a fine pilot, but it was just my my brain wasn't 100% in the cockpit. And once I started to, once those thoughts started to intrude upon me while I was supposed to doing something that required a hundred percent of my mind and attention. I didn't feel like I was uh, the best crewmate for anybody else. I was flying with that. I was, that was dangerous. Um, in reality, was I fine? Probably. Uh, but it's not a chance that I was willing to take with or, somebody else. Were you upset that you weren't able to compartmentalize it the second time around? Uh, it was frustrating. It was frustrating, you know, being in the field, either at gunnery or JRTC and, um, being scared going up to the aircraft or dreading getting in the aircraft. Cause it was something that I love to do. Uh, that was incredibly frustrating. When you tell your commander, I'm not right. What's, what's your commander's response? Overwhelming support. Um, he was like, do what you got to do. We'll take you off the flight schedule. Go see the dock. Um, you know, they precautionary grounding. I mean, they didn't have to do that. They could have kept, kept me flying up until the dock said, no, we can't. He made, went out of his way to make sure that I got a quick appointment with the flight doctor, and the flight doctor was wonderful about making sure I got a quick appointment with uh, behavioral health. Um, and other than the battalion commander, who will remain nameless because he's a douchebag, um, you know, everybody else was, was super supportive. They understood. Every, almost everybody's had close calls. Everybody's had those moments, and a lot of people are like, "Hey, I wish I had gone and I'd done that." And for me, the most rewarding part about that was that my willingness to go do it inspired a good friend of mine to do the same. And it probably saved his life. And that, that to me was made it worth it. The loss of my flying career, the loss of all that stuff, the fact that he was able to go get help, he got better. And now he's in one sixtieth. So he completely turned his entire career around because he said, Hey, Curtis went and did it and he didn't lose his career and he didn't lose the respect. And I can, I can do this. I can get help and I can continue my career. And he did. And that, that makes it worth it to me. For those listening, 160 at the 160th SOAR, uh, Special Operations Aviation Regiment. It's the sort of green berets of the pilot world for the army. So, uh, best, best pilots in the world. Um, and oh, by the way, we, we support calling out douchebags on this podcast. If you're, if someone's a douchebag, we want to let the world know. Uh, so feel free to drop names if you feel so, but you know. <laughs> um, so you end up going through obviously, uh, you know, the medical board and everything else, and they decide your career is over. Uh, are you upset, angry, hurt, disappointed? What are the emotions? A little bit of all. Um, I love flying. I miss it. Um, every time I get to go up with somebody else and fly, uh, especially in a helicopter, I really enjoy it. Um, 
I hope that one day it's an option again for me to fly. Uh, the FA is just not super friendly to that whole idea. They put a lot of roadblocks into that. But the the idea that I would never get to fly either uh, definitely professionally for a while and maybe not ever was yeah, it was it was, a, it was a huge kick in the nuts. Uh, but at the same time, I walked away from the army uh, happy and with no anxiety and no issues. And for my personal health, it was a relief. So it, it was very contradictory to have this this immense relief and happiness, but at the same time, um, not necessarily regret, but I guess mourning, grief over whatever over the loss of something that I really loved. So as you're forced to move on to the next phase of your life, um, what from the deployment is still hanging over you, if anything at all? Or deployments, I should say. When when I think about deployments, it's, it still always goes back to 2012. Because like I said, 2017 was just, for me, it was fun. I had a blast. Um, but there are things you can't ever fully get rid of, such as uh, guilt. Um, you know, like I mentioned, there were several times where somebody else was holding a mind detector that I either had recently just been holding or should have been holding. Um, and you know, those guys lost legs and as many times as they tell me it's fine, I'm good. That always permeates through your, your mind as, Hey, it should have been me. Uh, stuff like that's really hard to let go of. And, uh, I inadvertently formed a very close friendship with the family of one of the guys that, that we lost, which is, has been a wonderful experience, but it's very, very powerful, especially around the time of year that he was, he was lost. Um, when we did an episode where his medic talked about that day, uh, that those are those very intense memories uh, definitely get to me sometimes. And it's just, it's just really hard to try to grapple with why him, why didn't he get to go home to his loving family? That, that's that's probably the hardest part. So how does the idea for the Panjway podcast come about? Um, and, you know, you mentioned an episode, but like what was going through your mind? Was it was it something where you just had to sort of get all the emotions out or was there something more to it? So Luke and I actually started the Luke Coffee, who was my mm-hmm. co-host um, and co- co-founder and everything. We were writing a book about the deployment and not because it was anything exceptional or wonderful, but just because we thought it was a very grounded grunt experience and it would really tell the story of what it was like to be a grunt in Afghanistan. Uh, but we were starting this like eight years out. So we there's so much that we didn't remember, so much that we couldn't like quite place in the timelines. So like, well, we need to talk to people. We need to interview people. And then the need to interview obviously evolves into the need to record the interviews so you can go back and listen to them. And if you're recording the interviews, we're like, well, we could release them as a podcast. Some people might be interested in listening to that. And lo and behold, you know, quite a few people did want to listen to that. So that kind of turned into the podcast. And then that contributed to the podcast evolving beyond our personal deployment to include uh, people who'd served at all, all eras of combat in Panjway. So when you started recording, obviously there was something that stuck out to you. There was, there was some story, some sort of moment where the light bulb goes on. Do you remember what that was? Oh man. I don't, I don't know. I think it was, it was probably even before we started recording that, you know, cause we, we started recording knowing it was going to be a podcast 
Um, but when we re- started to realize that this is really something that people were interested in is when we started fundraising to, to buy the equipment to do it. And the response was so overwhelming and the support was way more than we expected. We're like, okay, this is, this is a real thing. People are actually going to listen to this. This isn't just going to be our parents listening to it and, you know, throwing $5 for a Kickstarter. People are actually are, are going to give a shit. And if people are going to give a shit, we have to do it right. We can't, we can't half-ass this. And that, that was probably kind of our light bulb moment was there's a, there's a real audience for these stories and we owe it to guys like Luxmore, like Brazos, like Swindle and Pinnock and Lily to do it correctly and with integrity. And that was kind of our guiding moment was that you need, when we need to buckle down and do this correctly. Did you find that guys, some guys were resistant to wanting to do it or everybody was pretty much willing to step up and, and tell their story for the podcast? Some guys weren't ready and that's fine. Um, but for by and large, I don't, I can't think of anybody except for maybe one person that we've asked to come on the podcast that didn't want to do it. We actually have the opposite problem. We have way more people that want to come on and share their stories than we can possibly ever fit uh, in the lifespan of the podcast. Again, because I'm a audio nerd and I'm, and I'm obsessed with quality. So it's, it's quite a uh, process for me to, to make the episodes. Right. Um, you're into, we're done with your second full season, correct? We are almost done with the second full season. We, uh, I think we have, oh man, like eight or nine more episodes left. So maybe about halfway through the second season. When you started recording other people who served in Panjway and had battles there, what was something that stood out to you that was either different or unique about their experience as compared to yours? So a lot of units, it seemed, stuck a lot harder to doctrine than we did in terms of going out as full platoons, utilizing weapon squads, doing these bounding movements, um, which is fine. If it worked for them, it worked for them. We're, I'm not one to judge. Uh, but either because we were undermanned or because our company commander was a ranger regiment guy, we quickly n- reduced the scale of our operations to more squad size operations. We ditched the weapon squad. Uh, and we tried to be fast and more adaptive, um, even to the point of like well, our platoon pretty much ditched the M240 halfway through and grabbed a Gustav instead. And that was that was just the way that we operated was a little bit different than the other units did. Um, and that that really stood out to me that our footprint on the ground was much less in terms of the number of Americans on the ground. Were you shocked to find out that you might not have been the best infantryman in Panjay? I mean, I still think we were. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, and like I said, when we started this part, we knew we weren't like the the bee's knees. You know, we were trying to tell the story because we thought we were so wonderful. We we knew we weren't, um, but we were we were surprised to see the intensity of some of the combat, particularly that the Canadians saw early on in their deployments, um, and to some extent, the guys that were there at the same time that we were in one, two, three down further into the deeper into the Horn of Panjway. Um, and that's first and 23rd infantry regiment, which we were attached to for that deployment. Uh, so we were, we weren't terribly surprised to find out the guys had it a little harder than us. Um, but some of the stories that we heard are, are just, are pretty ridiculous. And uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it can definitely be very humbling at times. Now you even went so far as to tell, uh, the story about Robert Bales, the, the Kandahar massacre, at least from uh, a point of view of people who were, with him or served with him or, you know, the, the backstory of it. Right. Yeah. And that was, we had two soldiers that were on his squad. Uh, they were his soldiers. 
and they reached out and they wanted to tell their story. And we're like, absolutely. Um, and they had quite a story to tell. Um, and it was, like I said, that was kind of where you kind of set this character profile up of, of Robert Bales as this guy that I've run into like 10 times in the army. Uh, so it was really, it was really fascinating to see the progression of this guy from when he first met them and the way he behaved and this, you know, degeneration, I guess, of his behavior once he got on the ground in Afghanistan, which obviously culminated in that horrible, horrible incident. Um, you know, it, I think it was, I'm glad we took three episodes to tell it because I think it took three episodes really to process everything sure. that they were. Yeah. How emotional is it for you to do the podcast? Uh, depends. Sometimes extremely. Um, you know, just yesterday I received a message from the wife of one of the guys that was on uh, our show, one of our medics, um, and her words were extremely powerful and, you know, it put definitely sent me to tears because of the impact that it had on her and her family to hear him finally talk about it. Um, we get messages from family members, spouses, um, the, the families of those who were lost and it's always positive and it's always thank you for letting their story be told. Thank you. We've never heard this. We really wanted to, it's taken him years to open up. This is, and when we get messages like that, it's, it's extremely overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, same, same, you know, we, we've experienced it all. Um, how cathartic is it for you? Early on, extremely, because when we first started in the first few episodes, I mean, it was our inner circle and we're talking about our worst days. Right. And those experiences and those episodes, even though they're a little bit earlier on and the quality is not as good, the, the emotional intensity of those discussions was so intense. And after we did those first few episodes, just stepping back was like, wow, like I never realized, you know, how impactful this was to other people and how I next get Sometimes I just didn't even realize how impactful it was for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of a moment where I was like, this is, we're kind of onto something here. This is something that needs to be done. And I, I, I encourage other veterans to do the same and tell their stories and tell their buddies stories because it has really helped bring me a lot of, uh, a closure personally, but I see it in every person that's come on and their family members, how much it's helped. Do you think you'll branch out past Panjway, uh, with your podcast? We've considered it. Um, you know, we, we definitely want to make sure we tell the story of, of Panjway. Um, and we've, we've tossed around the idea of, of inviting guys who have other, you know, have deployed to other places and to have them tell their stories or help them set the, uh, set up their own podcast to tell their own story. Um, but right now, I mean, we're so overwhelmed <laughs> with what we have in front of us, but it's something we'd love to do because the stories just, yeah, they can, absolutely. There's so many, and as you as you know, I mean that yeah. that's the entire basis of, of your podcast, and you've had some wonderful guests on the Hazard Ground, and some amazing stories being told, and you guys doing it for what, like six, seven years, coming up on five now. Yeah, I mean it's uh, we're approaching 300 episodes. I mean it's a uh, we've been plugging away at a pretty pretty long, pretty good now. So, uh, but it's a uh, it's one of those things where you know even when you think. The stories may be getting old, or they—they—we've they, told it already. It just 
somebody brings something different to the conversation always. Um, how much are your guys willing to, to dive into the mental health conversation and uh, where they are and, and have those, those tough conversations? Because I think those are, more than anything, super important. Extremely. And that's what I love about our podcast is that everyone that comes on is willing to shed their, you know, shame, I guess, and like bear it all out. I mean, we've had people talk about their suicide, uh, their suicidal thoughts or their dark times or how they've gotten through them and what treatments have worked for them. And, you know, every, I think almost every single guest that has gone through something like that has been, can I talk about mental health? Can I talk about my experience? I'm like, yes, please. Um, so I've been very impressed with our guests and their willingness to confront those really difficult topics because from the beginning, we didn't want this just to be war stories. We wanted to really dive into the human effect that the combat in that area had on these people or you know, just combat in general. Um, and um, it's super rewarding to have guests on time and time again that are willing to have those conversations. Panjwaypodcast.com is the website, the Panjway Podcast. Panjway is P-A-N-J-W-A-I, uh, the Panjwaypodcast.com. You can get everything there. Of course, you guys are on all of the major podcast platforms as well. Um, and you guys even got some some swag stuff for Panjway, right? We do. We got some t-shirts. We got some new koozies going up this week. We got uh, – actually, it's not this hat. I'm wearing the wrong hat. Uh, we got some <laughs> sweet multi-cam leather patch hats. Uh, some stickers, some vinyl decals, so little stuff, but uh, it, every every bit helps. That's what supports the podcast. Uh, between that and our Patreon subscriptions, that is what keeps us going. It pays our bills. Well, look, it's obviously a uh, an incredible way to go about uh, getting the stories out there uh, of the people. You actually on the website too as well. Pay homage to all the guys that are that are no longer with us and, and their sacrifice. So I think that's that's outstanding as always, but. Um, what do you, what do you kind of hope the podcast will be when it's all said and done? I hope that when it's all said and done, the podcast is this thing, whether it's actually a physical thing or it's just like, you know, a thought exercise that you can put on the shelf and say, that was my experience. And that guys can, if they have kids or grandkids or family members, like, what was it like to fight in Panjo? like, let me show you, like, let, let, let's listen to it together. Let, let's, let me paint you a picture or here's my episode where I talked about it. Uh, I want it to be a, kind of a recorded history of, of some of those well, that's, stories. That, that's the thing, Curtis. I mean, we didn't, when we started this, we never set out to do anything other than tell stories. And it never dawned on us that we would chronicle history in a way for everybody to have forever. As long as the internet's around, these stories will be out there from a first person point of view. Um, and it's not taking anything away from authors or movie makers, or whatever, but nothing beats the individual who was there giving you their point of view. Um, and from that standpoint, the Panjway podcast, this one, we are literally chronicling history forever. And that is an undertaking that, that you know, should probably get a little bit more, uh, selfishly, it probably should get a little bit more love from, from the masses. Um, but it, it's, you know, no one looks at it that way. But in reality, that's what you're doing. And most importantly, you know, um, like you said, when my kids ask me about my combat experience, when they're old enough to have that conversation with me, um, I could sit down and tell them, but I can also, you know, what you've done is listen to this first and then we'll have a conversation about it, you know, and it makes it easier because you've told them the long form discussion. And I, I think 
you know, from that standpoint, we are fostering relationships between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, parents and children, you know, um, and, and, and it's, it's something that forever, um, again, is there. So, uh, tip yourself, tip, tip, tip a cap to you, but just understand, you know, that, that, that's part of what you're doing unintentionally, but it's what's happening. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was the, the wonderful byproduct of the entire thing. And I think the aspect that we never really counted on was how much more willing people are to talk about these things with somebody who's been there or experienced yep. something. hundred percent. It's, it's, it's just the easiest thing in the world when the, this, the interviewer understands the subject. It's why rape survivors talk to other rape survivors, right? It, it, it's why, you know, substance abuse people go to meetings with other substance abuse people. It's, it's that commonality, that shared ground, that shared experience that makes saying things so much easier. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, I I was always been surprised that the whole like for veterans, like the whole sit in a circle and talk about your experience kind of group doesn't really exist. It exists in the movies, but like people really don't do that. Like everything is so structured and organized. And I think no, it's call you know, a one eight hundred number and talk to a stranger you've never met before, right? Or or go into the VA and do the exact thing. You get like a, a handbook and like you go through your daily exercise. Like that's not what a lot of guys want. They just they just want to talk about it. You want to talk about somebody that was there or was there at a different time or they, they just want someone to be like, yeah, man, that sucks. And not be in an environment where people are like, well, that sounds cool, but here's what I did, you know, and that's, you know, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a little bit. The veteran community has got to be better about just supporting each other, not trying to outdo each other with war stories or, or try to sell their coffee brand or, or whatever. I mean, which is fine if you've got a company that's great to support that, but you know, we really need to be better about being like, hey, everybody served, everybody did their part, and everybody needs help. And it doesn't matter if you're a pogue or not. I was a fucking pogue. I admit it. It was great. I'm glad it became a pogue. But we need we just need to be better as a community. We need to be better veterans and we need just need to support each other. And that's that's my soapbox. hundred <laughs> percent. I mean it's it's uh it's very well said and, and easily understood, and it's kind of exactly where the mindset mindset should be for all of this stuff. So again, the com is where you can get uh, all the episodes again and wherever else you get podcasts. Guys, give this podcast some support and some love. Uh, the stories are amazing. They are incredible. Uh, and obviously, if you're a fan of this podcast, you'll be a fan of Curtis Podcast as well. Again, the com. Curtis, man, we appreciate you uh, spending some time with us and certainly opening up to us and giving us your personal story. But we wish you nothing but continued success with the Panjway podcast and continue up the great work, man. And we certainly uh, appreciate you joining us. And I can't thank you enough for having me on and for having Luke on in the future. It's a, it's a huge privilege for us. Uh, we, we very much appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Unfortunately, we can't go on yours because we've never been to Panjway. So, but that's fine. Stand it out. <laughs> I kid, I kid. No, but I, I, and that's one thing I think that's unique and I love about it is it's, even though it's, it's sort of narrow the focus, um, because there was a surge and because there were so many people there and because there's so much has happened there over the course of 20 years of combat, um, you know, it, it gets very specific to the heart of the matter. And um, the related experiences there are that much deeper. You know, I mean, I've been to Afghanistan. I know what the grounds looks like. Never been to, to, to Panjway. Um, sure, I can understand it, but it's, it's different when you've been there uh, and you know certain things. Just like me talking about Route Tampa and Baghdad. You know, it's... Uh, Anybody who's dri- driven up and down that road knows exactly what I'm talking about and everything else. So, and it's always fun. You can be like, do you remember that building? The one that had the, you know, this, it, and you have somebody to be able to relate to. Yeah. So, all right, Curtis Grace. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground, brother. 
You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.